The Prison Rape Elimination Act, known as PREA, outlines a set of federal standards to prevent sexual assaults in prison. The act passed with bipartisan support back in 2003, but today several states, including Indiana, have decided the standards are unrealistic. Governor Mike Pence says there is little data to prove the effectiveness of the standards, and Indiana has taken action on its own to change policies and practices to prevent sexual assaults in prison. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we will talk about what it takes to be in formal compliance with the federal standards and the possible ramifications for states that fail to meet them. We'll discuss Indiana's efforts and hear from a state that is still working to abide by the national standards. And we invite you to join our conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about federal regulations to reduce sexual assaults in prison. The Prison Rape Elimination Act, also called PREA, passed without complaint a decade ago. Now Mike, Governor Mike Pence uh, is one of the uh, governors who says adhering to the law would be too expensive. So we're going to talk about the regulations and the governor's decision today. Uh, we have uh, one guest who will be joining us in a few minutes on, in the studio. We have two guests who are joining us by phone. The first half of the program, we're going to be joined by, we are being joined by Brian Pearson, who is the executive director of PREA compliance for the Indiana Department of Corrections for the, for the state of Indiana. Uh, we're going to be joined by Tom Scher of the Illinois Department of Corrections during the second half of the program. And we expect to be joined this first half also by Leela Ewers of Indiana Cure. Cure stands for Citizens United for Rehabilitation of errants. It promotes ideals of restoration and rehabilitation to reform the criminal justice system. So if you have questions or comments on this issue, please give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area, or you can join the live chat at Twitter or at uh, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And I got ahead of myself. We also have a Twitter feed, so you can send us a question on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I want to welcome uh, Brian Pearson to the program. Brian? I'm pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the program. Sure, absolutely. So we're going to talk about, about Indiana uh, first, and so maybe you can help background us about Priya, um, what, uh, you know, what exactly, or not exactly, but in general, what does it say? And then give us a sense of, of why the governor is uh, reluctant to just embrace it. Uh, well, the Department of Correction uh, has been uh, trying to uh, comply with all the standards of the, uh, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Since the act passed in 2004, we uh, uh, created a prison rape oversight group and then and, uh, assigned PREA compliance managers at every facility in the department. 
Um, and there's been numerous things that we've done since then uh, to try to comply with the Act. Um, some standards uh, are difficult to apply with, which is what uh, some of the issue has been. Um, and also the timeline that the Department of Justice uh, provided the state uh, was a, a bit difficult to, uh, to meet at the, uh, the way that it was um, implemented. Um, the standards passed or, or were in, put into effect in uh, 2012, uh, and by 2013, August of 2013, one year later, all of the states had to certif uh, begin to do certified audits uh, of their facilities. Um, that gave governors very little um, time to go um, train the staff on the standards, which were very specific. There are 52 standards, and to uh, allow us time to ascertain our, our level of compliance and make adjustments from what we were already doing uh, to comply with the Act, because the, the Act wasn't as uh, specific as the standards are. So um, some of the problem has just been with that. Uh, many of the governors have uh, said it on a conference call with the National Governors Association back before the certification deadline occurred, and uh, much of the talk was about timeline, the amount of time was given to governors to actually um, determine whether their state could be in full compliance with the uh, standards or not. Now, yeah, I've got the, the letter from the governor here, and I've got a letter from the governor of Illinois. All the governors uh, needed to notify um, the U.S. Attorney General, I, I believe by May 15th, on whether you were going to be able to comply, whether you're working toward compliance. Um, the Indiana letter doesn't appear to, I mean, it says that you're working toward compliance on, on your own, on the state's, you know, the state is working toward compliance, but it doesn't really give any indication that, that you want to uh, follow the national PREA standards, uh, at least that's compared to the Illinois letter, which talks about how it, it intends to, to be up to the standards by a certain time. Um, the Indiana letter is more. I, I guess it was, it's it's been portrayed in the press, and and I'm, I guess I'm asking you for whether that's an accurate portrayal. That basically Governor Pence is one of seven governors that has basically said we're just not going to do this. Yeah, and that's that's not an accurate portrayal. Um, I, I think, and I, again, I can't necessarily speak on behalf of the governor, but um, I think his letter. Um, and just simply said that the, the timelines and some of the standards uh, uh, kind of didn't give us enough latitude and, and, and that to, to comply with. Uh, for example, there's a required staffing ratio in juvenile facilities, uh, one to eight during the day and one to 16 during the uh, sleeping hours. Um, you know, we have four juvenile facilities. Only one of those facilities can meet that standard the other facilities would have to add would have to add staff, which um, I was given some figures by the superintendents for those facilities um, um, last year, and uh, those figures were about 5.4 million dollars in additional cost for staff to try to comply with that that staffing ratio. Which we're not sure where that staffing ratio comes from, and, and what there's been no research that we've been told of that, that supports those sta uh, staffing ratios. I've been, had an audit at uh, two of our juvenile facilities, um, the one that, at Madison Juvenile, which does meet the ratios, and then I've been to Logansport Juvenile, uh, where he, uh, every 
everywhere I went, there were cameras and uh, staff with the juveniles in, in their rooms, uh, classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't go anywhere without being watched. So I just, I just can't understand how that's not an appropriate staffing level uh, to protect uh, the, the kids from uh, any kind of sexual assault or assault in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's something that the Department of Correction and, and corrections professionals in general have uh, never advocated this as uh, rape as part of a, the sentence, uh, which is what some of the media accusations were after, um, you know, that deadline occurred and some of the states didn't uh, provide either certification or assurance that we would try to comply with the standards. Um, you know, safety and security uh, is primary uh, goal in our facilities, and part of that is, uh, you know, safety and security of the inmates, whether it be physical assault or sexual assault. We try to prevent that as much as we possibly can. Now, one thing um, that I've read also, you mentioned about $5 million to comply with all of these things, and there is a, a loss of some federal funding, but the, one, of the, one of the things I read suggested that was about $325,000, a loss of federal funding, compared to the $5 million or so you'd have to spend to come in compliance. Do those numbers make sense to you? Yeah, um, the, five, the $5 million would be an annual cost, uh, so it's not just a one-time uh-huh. cost. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, that $300,000, we are not sure exactly what that uh, actual 5% penalty would be. Um, I've seen figures between two hundred fifty to 350000 but that, that's not going to make up for the, just that having to add staff to, to meet right. that one standard. And, and that's not the only standard that we have some difficulty with. Um, there's a youth and, uh, youthful inmate standard uh, that requires you not to have uh, offenders 18 years old and up within sight and sound of, of youthful offenders. that are, Those are under 18 um, in the housing unit. We have a youth incarcerated as an adult program at Wabash Valley and um, you know kids that go into that program that are their sentenced as an adult they may come in at 15 16 or 17 years old they're put into that program they're, they're kept separated from the adult population and provided special programming um, but sometimes uh, 18 doesn't necessarily mean that they're ready to go out in the adult population so they're allowed to uh, based on their need to stay in that program until they're 21 years old, that violates the standard. Um, but we don't feel like in Indiana that we should have to change our program, which we think is a very a very good model, uh, maybe a best practice to try to meet this one standard that, um, that I'm not sure, you know, what, what the folks that drafted that standard were thinking about uh, when they did. I mean, I just, you know, because you turn 18 doesn't mean you're ready to go out in the adult popula- population if you the prison system at 16. Right. Well, we're talking uh, now with Brian Pearson, who's the executive director of PREA Compliance. PREA stands for the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Um, he's with the Department of Corrections in, in Indiana. We've also been joined by Leela Ewers of, the, of Indiana Cure, Citizens United for Rehabilitation of Errants. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 855-0811 or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Or you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So Leela, thanks for being here with us. 
Thank you for inviting me. Right. So um, could you give us a, a sense of what your organization does and how you feel about um, the about the the act that we're talking about today and, and Indiana's decision on how it's going to going to uh, move forward? Um, our organization is based actually in Washington, D.C. Uh, with International Cure. We're a chapter associated with that. <clears throat> and um, I have been listening uh, to what you've been saying about this. And um, when you brought this up as an item that was, you know, going to be spoken about today, I started asking around, you know, some ex-offenders and, you know, things that had happened and um, trying to get my bearings on this. Um, originally, I thought that PREA was going to be a great program, you know, because it's already been instituted in the past. And then um, I've had some issues mentioned about um, confidentiality um, and amenity. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, PREA is, is a good program, but um, how can we help the inmates to utilize it, you know, more effectively and to protect themselves? Um, one thing that was brought up was that if you contact PREA, it would be on the kiosk in the prisons, and um, the inmate has to put their ID number in there, of course, to get onto the kiosk. And um, also there's um, something else that was brought up that um, if a written complaint is turned in, that you're not assured that it will not be on the bulletin board. And although your name wouldn't be on there, um, someone might recognize your handwriting. And so the anonymity is, you know, is part of it if we would have it successfully. Um, I'm all for anything that protects the inmates. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask uh, Brian, Brian Pearson. So you heard what Leela said about some of the concerns about uh, anonymity and about um, just basically basic privacy if, if there have been assaults and they're being reported. Can you address that in Indiana's prison system? Well, uh, first I'll talk about the kiosk, referred to as the JPEG kiosk. Um, they have those in, in almost every facility. Uh, the only, the offenders can go on there and, and send an email to uh, INCASA. That, that program has ended because INCASA has recently had some problems, and, and is now we're not sure if they're going to ha even be in existence anymore. Um, they were our victim advocacy uh, group that, was, uh, that were assisting us with the compliance with the standard that requires them to have contact with the victim advocates. Uh, but going back to the kiosk, if, if an inmate sends an email from that kiosk, there's no way for us to not have their uh, their um, EOC number on there. But those em emails were going to um, INCASA, not necessarily to us. So um, it gave them access to a victim advocate. There was also a, a hotline that they had access to on the offender phone system directly to INCASA. So if they, if they had concerns with uh, the... the email system on the kiosk, it was only one method of, of a way to, for them to contact Casa. They could get on the phone and, and make that call and not have to tell them who they are. Um, currently, we have uh, a hotline that goes to our internal affairs investigators at the facilities that they could make a call to. 
um, they can anonymously uh, turn a note in to one of the staff uh, if they want to. But I'm not sure what this uh, claim is about uh, written complaints being posted on bulletin boards. I would have to know, get some specifics on that to even find out whether that's even true. You, in your uh, your knowledge of, of the prisons in Indiana, I mean, are there bulletin boards where inmates post complaints there, or not? There are bulletin boards in the cell houses and dormitories that we post, uh, you know, information for the offender population on there, but that's done by staff, and never have I ever heard of uh, an offender's written note or, or grievance or anything like that being posted on those bulletin boards. Okay. All right, thanks. Thanks for that clarification. Uh, all right, if you want to join us to talk about uh, this Prison Rape Elimination Act and Indiana's response to it and the second half of the show, uh, Illinois' response to it, you can call us at 855-0811 and also 1-877-285-9348. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Brian, this is Mary Catherine. Um, I'm wondering how how do you keep statistics and numbers on this? How are rapes reported? And um, has that changed um, your the reporting process? Has that changed prior to PREA as opposed to now? We lost Brian, I guess. Okay. All right, we're going to try to get Brian back, but we uh, lost him, so I guess he he won't be answering your question right no, now. No, I guess not. <laughs> so I hope we can get him back briefly because I have a couple other questions for him too. Um, so, Leela, I want to – it sounds like in your uh, understanding of, of PREA that your group, which really is looking out for the, the rights of the inmates, um, is um, not 100 percent behind it. When I heard some of the complaints, that was what sort of changed my mind. Um, a program is only as effective as the people who supervise it. Mm -hmm. And um, I am concerned that um, some staff, not all, but some staff um, are not particularly concerned about whether rape goes on or not. Mm -hmm. So what, what strategies do you think need to be uh, employed? Are, are there certain things that you would advocate for? Uh, does it come down to who's hired and who's working in the prisons? Yes, as a matter of fact, it does come down to the integrity of the person that is hired mm -hmm. and um, their concerns. Um, there are many good staff in the Department of Corrections in Indiana, um, but as out in the community, there are people who lack the compassion and, um, you know, whatever it takes to deal with situations mm -hmm. like that. Maybe they're not properly trained. Mm -hmm. So um, training could help. Um, also, I'm in favor of... Uh, paying, you know, decent livable wages to correction staff so that we attract people with degrees mm -hmm. and um, expertise in dealing with inmates. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I think Brian's back, right? Yes. All right. Glad to, glad to have you back. Mary Catherine had asked a question right before we went off the air, and 
Mary Catherine, you want to? I, yeah, I don't know how much of that you got, Brian, but um, I'm just interested in reporting reporting practices, um, how uh, sexual assaults and rapes are reported, and if that process has changed at all um, since the um, at least partial uh, uh, effort to follow PREA, uh, and, and if the numbers have gone up or down dramatically as a result. Um, well, the, prior to PREA, you know, and I, I used to be a case manager in a cell house at Wabash Valley Corrections back in the 90s. I, you know, if an offender had an issue um, with somebody threatening them with sexual assault or if something did happen to them, they, they came to the staff. Usually your counselors or casework managers directly and it was investigated. I did a lot of protective custody investigations, not necessarily always directly related to uh, sexual abuse issues, but sometimes mm-hmm. were. Uh, yeah, since the PREA, uh, PREA's passed in 2003, I mean, we, like I just mentioned, we added uh, the ability for uh, the offenders to contact in CASA. Um, We've also, like I said, the hotline directly to our internal affairs investigators. Um, we've got posters throughout the facility with that number on there that they can hit. It's just uh, pound 22 and juvenile and pound 80, I believe, in adult facilities. It's just they pick the phone up, put in their their DOC number, and they can hit that number and, and make a, a report. Um, so th- there are several ways. For the, and, and there's also a, a hotline on our website, the DOC website, and an email address where family members or, or friends of an offender, if they tell them about something, can can email directly to me or make a phone call to the hotline directly to to my desk to uh, make a report. And and I've you know recently had a call where uh, it wasn't where somebody was sexually assaulted, but they were being threatened. Uh, so I immediately contacted the facility and have that offender. Uh, um, protected place separated from the population until we can look into things and make sure that you know nothing's going to happen uh, so there's there's we've always had um, the ability for the, uh, the inmates to make a report to us but we've definitely improved that um, since this act has passed mm-hmm. How, what kind of numbers are we talking um, if you could break it out into juvenile and adult that would be helpful um, I, I yeah, I've got the numbers from last year. I uh, just actually been working on the Department of Justice report. We have to uh, report these numbers every year mm-hmm. and have been since 2004. Um, there were, we had 34 uh, um, substantiated cases of, of, of complaints. Now, they're, they're, they range from just inmate sexual harassment against another inmate or abuse of sexual contact, and that's just, you know, abuse of touching there's non-consensual sex acts, which is actually um, inmate against inmate rape. Um, then there's staff sexual harassment and staff sexual misconduct. We had 10 cases of staff, staff sexual misconduct during 2013. Not every one of those cases, though, based on the definition, are actually where uh, a sex act took place. Um, I can tell you one case off the top of my head was uh, a female offender kissed a female staff member and it was mutual you know consensual between them but that's inappropriate and the staff member was terminated um, there was one case uh, that was in the um, juvenile uh, institution again it was a female staff member and, um, 
kissed one of the juvenile boys. Uh, that staff member was terminated once that uh, finding was that it was substantiated. Um, so you, you, you don't always have with uh, staff sexual misconduct uh, an actual uh, sex act that occurs. So that, we had 10 cases throughout the department in 2013. Um, okay. Yeah, thanks, Brian. And then just so we can kind of put that in context, out of a total prison population of what? Um, 25,600 and some, I believe, average daily population for last year. Huh, that doesn't seem too realistic. I don't know. That seems well. I have a couple quick questions for you, and then we're going to let you let you go. But so you know, Priya was passed in about ten years ago, and so it's been certainly a major topic of discussion. And you've been working toward making things safer. So, you know, how, how would you assess what's happened in the last ten years? I mean, is an inmate um, safer now and less likely to be sexually assaulted? than he or she was 10 years ago? Um, I, it, I think there's probably been a little bit of a, a change in, in, um, in our system, both with our staff and the offender population, uh, a positive change, that is. And in, in it's just it's out in, in front now, uh, more so than it was in the past. Like I said, we have the posters posted everywhere in the facilities, the, the Staff and the inmates are given brochures about our zero tolerance policy for any kind of sexual conduct whatsoever. And um, I've, you know, I've had some uh, audits, uh, internal audits. I've done at some of the facilities, and I'm I'm a certified Department of Justice auditor. Um, we have to interview staff and offenders, and I have, I chose to interview some of the lifers that we have at like Pendleton Correctional Facility. Mm-hmm. And I asked uh, a guy who'd been incarcerated now since 1970 what was it like back then versus now and he said that there's definitely been a a change um, from the way things were back in 1970 uh, versus now and and, you know uh, I hired in the department in 94 and and it's it's a little bit different like I said we we approach things a little differently every facility has a sexual assault response team that we didn't have when I hired the department in '94, so it it has been a positive uh, change um, with uh, the, the, the um, Department of Correction and corrections in general. Um, I'm just you know some of the things with the issues we have are there's just a few of the standards and, and uh, like you know maybe four standards I think that, that we really uh, have some issue with uh-huh. you know we comply with the, the rest of the standards. Uh, we're we're in good shape to comply with, and I think there are a lot of uh, pretty much most of the states are are kind of in the same situation. Uh, well, I think you know we're going to be talking with someone from Illinois, and, and I just want to my last question is just to make sure that I understand the difference because the the Illinois letter um, seemed to give assurance that Illinois will be complying with these standards, and I think what what the Indiana letter the Indiana letter stopped short of that. Is that that's accurate? I mean, you said. It, that the letter should either have certification or assurance that you will comply. Right. The, the, okay. the Department of Justice gave us a couple of options. And, uh-huh. you know, one was to certify your state's fully compliant, which includes the jails and the work release centers and the, and mm-hmm. the, and the counties also. Um, but and the other option was to provide assurance that your 
you're not compliant, but you're providing assurance that you're going to work towards compliance uh, and use your 5% penalty funds towards compliance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, I can't speak on, on behalf of Governor Pence uh, for why the, the decision was made. Really not. To, he just didn't provide an, an answer to right. either one of those, just right. to uh, make some you know, requests that we go back and look at some of these, um, the timeline uh, and that. And I think the Department of Justice, since the certification deadline passed, uh, put out some, uh, you know, information to the, the states that says, oh, well, you know, now we're going to delay uh, the D penalty till 2015. So they're even now kind of admitting that maybe they, they it's kind of like you put the cart before the horse. Uh, uh, the audits were supposed to start last August, yet they only had about 40 auditors for the entire country. Mm. that were certified. I went through the second class in November of last year. I didn't even get my certification until, um, I think it was March or April this year. And, and the, dead, you know, the time was already going uh, that, uh, for us to be, have one third of your facilities audited by August of this year. It's just not, it wasn't possible. Right. Um, so there's a standard that you lose simply because of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, plus, you know, just not having the time to, to, to go out and actually evaluate every facility. I haven't audited every facility yet for the state, and I haven't even visited the county work releases to to see how far they've gotten in working towards uh, compliance. I, I know that they are. Um, I've talked to many of them, and I've met with them, but uh, actually going to their facility and doing an evaluation, I haven't been able to do that yet. All right. Okay, well, we're going to let you go, Brian, and we're going to have to take a short break, but I want to thank Brian Pearson from the uh, Indiana Department of Correction. He's executive director of PREA PREA Compliance. So thanks, Brian. Thanks very much. All right, thanks for being here. We're uh, going to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition as we talk about uh, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and uh, we will be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Communications. More information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking about um, the Prison Rape Elimination Act and how it's uh, being perceived by Indiana and other states. Uh, Indiana is one of seven states that where the governor sent a letter back to the, the federal government saying that, well, not, not either certifying that the state 
has been certified or assuring that the state of Indiana will be cert- will be complying with uh, PREA. Um, but so on the first half of the program, we talked with Brian Pearson about that. Uh, we also will be joined the second half of the program by Tom Scherer, who's with the Illinois Department of Corrections. And we'll talk about their letter in just a minute. And uh, we also have Leela Ewers of Indiana Cure, Citizens United for Rehabilitation of Errants, which is uh, an organization that promotes ideals of restoration and rehabilitation to reform the criminal justice system. So if you want to call us, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. And you can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Tom, are you there? I am here. Hey, thank you. Did I pronounce your last name right, Cher? You did. Thank okay. you, sir. Good to Good. be talking with you, Bob. Thank you. We're gonna get, I'm going to get back to you in just a second. I have a question for Leela I uh, want to get to uh, first, and that's just about your organization. And you know, I'm going to take it out of the whole PREA discussion and talk about what are some of your goals and what are some of the, of the, the key uh, issues that you think you, you, you're working on, that you are working on. Um, as a state chapter, is that what yeah. you're speaking mm-hmm. of? Okay. Um, one of the things that um, we do is we have a, a support group meeting in Indianapolis for ex-offenders, uh, people who are interested in criminal justice issues like fair sentencing, and families um, of prisoners and friends. And so in that, we try to assist um people who are coming back into society, you know, who have been in prison. And um, also with the families, we try to help with questions and, um, you know, just help them with the emotional problems that they have being separated from their loved ones and all the different things that come up time to time in the prisons. Um, Another thing that we do is um, I receive referrals from um, 211 Connect to help when prisoners and family members have questions. And um, that has really been an education, <laughs> getting all these phone calls. And um, <clears throat> last winter particularly, it was difficult for me because um, people who had been released and were on very strict stipulations and perhaps on the registry were not having any place to stay. And it was cold. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's very much a concern. And um, one of the other concerns I've had is even in the summertime, um, someone called me a little over a week ago. And um, they were on the registry, had only been released a few days, could not find any place to live because of the restrictions, did not have money, and could not live with a family member because that was not within the rules you know, the area that they lived in. And so when he had asked some supervisors for help, um, he was told that he could um, go out and buy a tent. Just don't put it in a park or any place in the 1,000-foot rural area. And so I'm very discouraged when I hear things like that. Um, We need better reentry services and um, we also need volunteers to help because we could actually help DOC by um, revising and updating their list that they give the people when they're released. Um, there's many things that could be done to help. 
most of resources is that what you're right uh-huh. as far as housing jobs uh-huh. medical services and things like that because uh-huh. um some sometimes they give out lists that are really outdated and you could go down through there and call place after place and they're either out of business or you know they have nothing to offer mm-hmm. so it's hard to know exactly where to go but um, so helping them get settled in the community again that's an issue um, safety in the prison um, their health care that that is an issue and even the food because what you eat you know influences the kind of health you have mm-hmm. and with the long prison sentences like indiana has you know it's not a question of of eating something that's not really nutritious for a few days or a few weeks or a few months you could be eating this for as long as you live if you're not you know going to be released mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i have concerns about that and so we're really here to help the prisoners and the families and uh, I received many letters from prisoners and um, among those needs are the health care the environment they're being held in um, the visitation um, many things and we would like to make visitation more visitor friendly and one thing that I was asked recently that um, you know just made me think Uh, this person said does being away from your loved ones ever get better or does it just keep getting worse and I thought and thought about that and I thought well maybe it would get better because you got the visits and you got the mail and and all that but then when I've asked around they say no it doesn't get better because you still have that wall of separation and um, people who have deserted you when you've been in prison for a while. And so um, I think there's a grieving process that they go through. Mm-hmm. And um, this is hard to deal with. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for uh, answering that question about what your organization does. Sounds like you've got quite an agenda there wow now tom i want to go back to you um you know we had the first half of the program and as i i said um in the introduction to the second half uh, brian pearson from indiana said to sort of explain some of of governor mike pence's rationale they couldn't couldn't explain it all because he's not the governor but the governor's letter uh did not assure that indiana will comply with PREA and certainly didn't say that the state was certified. Your letter, the, the letter from the Office of the Governor in Illinois, uh, says clearly at the end that, that the state intends to use not less than 5% of the DOJ grant funds made available to achieve and certify full compliance with the standards in future years. So it sounds like Illinois made a different decision from Indiana. And I wonder if you could talk about your decision to just to go ahead and try to comply with everything and to tell the federal government you're going to do that. Well, our director, uh, Salvador Godinez, uh, who reports to Governor Pat Quinn, has worked uh, very closely with the staff to identify the the reasons why PREA was passed. Uh, He's been in corrections for 40 years. Uh, As I say, he reports to Governor Quinn. Uh, Governor Quinn is very compassionate. He understands people. He, He knows that you know, people in elected office or 
those whom they hire, such as the governor hiring Director Godinez, we're responsible for the citizens of this state, and that includes those who are incarcerated. And we have safety and security foremost at all times. So long before uh, Priya became a topic of conversation, the Illinois Department of Corrections implemented an inmate sexual assault prevention and intervention program in 2003. Uh, we renamed it uh, in later years, it's now the Sexual Abuse and Harassment Prevention and Interve Intervention Program. So we valued it for years. We understand the point of PREA. We also identify the very difficult problems in implementing PREA as quickly as the federal government wanted and as we'd all like. But we value it, we understand it, and we're moving forward because of that. And that's not to make any comment about any other state. Sure. We respect the great state of Indiana, but we're telling you that we have this view and we're acting on our view. There are words and there are deeds. We have a practice in this Department of Corrections and in any department run by Governor Quinn that your deeds will back up your words, and that's what we're doing, Bob. Mm -hmm. uh, now, is it, a, is it a, an expensive process for you? Um, you know, in, in, again, in Indiana, and I'm just... I know Indiana is, or at least the numbers, so that's why I'm bringing them out. I'm not asking for a judgment, but their estimates are maybe $5 million for the state to comply, $5 million a year, and the fine is only maybe $350,000 a year, so there's not really an economic incentive for the state to do that. Are, are you in a similar situation? Well, we haven't put an exact cost on it, but millions could very well be part of it, but... It's, it's almost folded into our ongoing efforts to maintain safety and security. Assaults of all types, serious assaults, and we would, uh, we would say you know, a rape is a serious assault. Serious assaults of all types are down substantially in Illinois' prisons over the last few years. Um, in the last year or two that I've looked at statistics, I want to be accurate here, at least the last year, We've had only uh, one. I've, I see all the reportables. I've been in this job for a year and a half, so I can go back to uh, April of last year, roughly a year and a half. Uh, two uh, reported incidents of uh, sexual uh, assault. One was an assault that was alleged. It's still being investigated. Um, and the other one was... Uh, something that we absolutely established did occur. And, of course, the inmates involved were uh, treated fairly, and those who were to be punished, uh, that one inmate was punished. Um, my, I've digressed a little. My point is that we're always looking to keep an eye on everything. So let's just say there's a cost we can assign to complying with PREA. It's probably not a cost that we're not going to incur anyway, because we want safety and security to continue to be as good here as it, as it has been for decades now. Um, the issue of cost-benefit analysis, uh, we wouldn't do that on complying with something as important as Prius. So I, I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you that, yes, there are costs associated with any uh, mandate. And the government and the Bush administration in particular, which passed PREA, has a habit of the federal government, and they pass these unfunded mandates, whether it's No Child Left Behind or whether it's PREA. Mm -hmm. It happens at the federal level, and the states are left to deal with it. We get that. We understand that. We recognize that unfortunate fact. But it doesn't change the fact that the greater good is served by implementing PREA, and we're doing that, and we don't think the cost is onerous in a $1.2 billion budget, which is what we have. It's been a flat budget for seven years, but it is mm -hmm. $1.2 billion. Hi, Tom. This is Mary Catherine. Um, I want to get your reaction to just a, a 
paragraph from uh, the the uh, letter uh, from our governor. Um, it starts, a number of PREA guidelines conflict with other federal regulations as well as state laws and other nationally recognized detention standards. These conflicts would, in all likelihood, increase Indiana's exposure to litigation and liability. There is little empirical data showing these standards to be effective. Other standards appear to promote rather than eliminate misconduct and assault in prison. What's your reaction to that paragraph, Tom? I won't comment on something said by uh, an elected official in another state. I will tell you that we do not find those factors to exist in Illinois prisons. We So we would never say that here because I don't know the conditions in Illinois' correct, and pardon me, I don't know the conditions that uh, Indiana deals with in its correctional uh, centers, its facilities. You know, each physical plant is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what your stat- statistics are among your inmate population. I do know Indiana has a terrific recidivism rate. We'd like to get ours as low as Indiana's is, and we're working toward it. We lower it every year, but we want to get where you folks are. So I'll say that as very positive. I don't know what negatives you folks deal with. I will tell you that what you described in that paragraph would not be the case and is not the case in Illinois. So you haven't um, experienced an increase of litigation um, based on the implement the partial, at least partial, implementation of PREA? No. No, and your direct question, uh, Mary Catherine, is a little bit better for me because I'm getting a little verbose on you. No, not Uh, at all. You're doing great. The answer to your question is no, we have not. We have found that um, uh, some standards do present or bring up issues that agencies have not been required by federal or state statute to consider before PREA. So, sure, there are a lot of changes that we weren't used to, but we haven't seen anything which is going to jeopardize safety. Or and if there is, we won't do it. And let you know, let we'll, we'll talk to the government, federal government, explain it. You know, our job is safety and security. But we're not going to do anything that's going to make that um, prohibitively difficult. So I'm not. Now I'll tell you this: lawsuits. Anybody can sue anybody, and this is one of the great problems in correctional centers around the country. Every state faces this. You have inmates who have a lot of time. They have the legal right to use the libraries that we supply and we pay for. It's their right, and we endorse that right, to file lawsuits. They, they have the right to sue. We have thousands of lawsuits pending against this department. If PREA results in more lawsuits, bring it on, because we're going to get sued anyway. <laughs> That's what these people do. Uh, they've been convicted of crimes. Uh, some feel that they were treated unfairly or convicted uh, unfairly. That's all well and good. That's what the appeals process is for. But the number of frivolous lawsuits, nonsensical lawsuits, attorneys who flat out lie in various suits that are filed, it's been going on for years. It'll go on for years. PREA doesn't affect that, in our view, significantly, if at all. Great. Tom, can you, I'm going to ask you to help me understand something, and I think you're just the guy to do it. Um, As I understand it, PREA was passed and enacted in 2003, 2004. Is that accurate? Uh, Let me take a look. I'm not sure the exact year. I should know that. That's one of those little facts you should have off the top of your head. Okay, well, let's just say our research indicates that. So um, I guess I'm a little confused about uh, both um, Illinois and Indiana, and I know you can only speak to Illinois, um, saying, wow, we're working on this, but we haven't had enough time. Um, Ten years seems like a lot of time. I guess, can can you help me figure that out? I'm happy to tell you that. I can tell you how a 10-year time frame would affect this department. Uh, if somebody says it's, it takes a lot of time, and look, at we've, we've needed a lot of time to do this as well. Um, I can tell you that our job 
we, we don't hire new people just to implement PREA. We can't do it. The taxpayers should not be expected to spend that money if they don't have to. So we do what we can with our existing staff. And we manage our staff well. Uh, we've downsized and made more efficient this Department of Corrections under Governor Pat Quinn, which is one of the big reasons why Illinois' economy is turning around. He's really cut spending here. Um, so we, we feel we can do what we need with the people we have. Now, if we hired more people, could compliance with any mandate be quicker? Of course. But we haven't felt that the, the time has uh, that that we haven't had enough time what we what we will say is this and this is very important for anybody to understand and sometimes you know we need to make the federal government understand that just as they need to make us understand some things too just because you have a deadline for something to be completed doesn't mean other things won't come up we had a surprising increase in the number of incoming inmates uh, during 2012 or so and we don't control who we get, nor does the Indiana Department of Corrections. That's done, as you know, Mary Catherine and Bob, it's done by the courts. So all of a sudden, we're trying to comply with ADA and PREA and this and that and do everything we need to do. But we have a lot more inmates coming in. We need to take care of that right now. We had to find physical, physical locations for the unexpectedly higher number of inmates over a period of about a year and a half. And it pose tremendous problems for us, which we dealt with. Does that mean we can give full attention to PREA? Absolutely not. So I realize that, and I think people need to realize that, just because there's 10 years, that doesn't mean you spend all your time in those 10 years complying with a brand new mandate. And, and correctional systems are constantly juggling. They face new things all the time. And it does sometimes take your eye off the ball on some other matters. Okay, thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah, I want, I want to get your reaction, Tom, and also Lila's, because both uh, both you and Brian gave us numbers about uh, the number of sexual assaults. You know, your number, uh, if I heard you right, your number was two uh, in the last year and a half that you've confirmed or verified. That's correct. And I may be off by one. We find. We find yeah. one to be unacceptable, but sure. it's a very, very low number. I mean, Indiana. Uh, we thought yeah. Indiana's number was low, and, and Brian said 34 yeah. out of out of prison population of 200 or 25,000. And so, I mean, for for someone who's out here, you know, just a, an observer, that seems like an incredibly low number based on you know, I guess, popular media. Uh, and and I wanted to ask Leela. Um, well, before before we yeah. but one more, let me just say something sure. quickly on that. Yes. I'm not naive enough, or and no one <clears throat> working in this department, especially under a compassionate governor like Pat Quinn, we're not naive enough to think that many sexual assaults in society do not go reported. They go uh -huh. unreported. Right. And that may very well happen here, but we work constantly on it. We have a very, very aggressive intelligence and investigations division, which is outside the prisons. So they, they do outside investigations within our own department. We pounce on anything we think might be happening. So I'm not naive enough to say that we know of every single one, but that low number is is what I've seen, and I see all the reportables. And let's just say, for argument's sake, I'm wrong. I don't think I'm. I, I don't. I missed one. I don't believe I'm off by more than one or two. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just. Uh, you know, oh yeah, to no, get, no. Uh, I'm just saying that I'm yeah. not the official stat on this, but yeah. that's what I've seen as I look at the reportable incidents. So, Leo, when you talk to prisoners and you talk to inmates who are getting out of prison, I mean, what's the sense you get about? the prevalence of sexual assault in prisons? I think it is a higher prevalence than what is in the statistics. Um, and for many reasons, because <clears throat> rape or sexual assault, um, 
is difficult for people to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so that's not the number one thing on their mind when they get out is to disclose all that. All right. Well, hey, we're out of time. I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that, Tom, but we really appreciate your being on with us. Thank you. Good to be with you, Bob. All right. Thanks a lot. So I want to thank Tom Scherer and also Leela Ewers for being here with us today. Also, Brian Pearson, who was here in the first half of the program. For producer Lacey Scarmana, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Mary Catherine Carmichael, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. You can find podcasts of this and other WFIU programs at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.